Welcome to episode 56 of the J Bunny's Music Hub podcast. I'm your host, J Bunny. Well, everybody, this is this is a really great episode. For this episode, I was joined by Kevin Snell from Chemical Straightjacket, who you might remember from the last episode. He sort of co-hosted this episode with me, and we interviewed John Bechtel, who produced the Chemical Straightjacket album Dark Progression, which has been recently released. You may remember he he had a little bit of input on the Chemical Straightjacket episode, but this is a, a whole episode with John. We talk about his production work, we talk about his work with the band's Killing Joke, Fear Factory, Ascension of the Watchers, False Icons, Murder, Inc. There's so many bands that he's been in, so much that he's done in his career you know, since starting in the 80s, and we we, t- we covered a lot of it. Probably probably not all of it, but we covered a lot of it. It was such a great interview. It was such a great time. I did not mention in the, in the start of the interview that I was drinking Ghost Hawk, but of course I was. I think that I was just a little bit overwhelmed with what was about to happen with, with this, this interview. I think that you guys will enjoy it. Without further ado... Here's John. Alrighty, what's up, everybody? It's Jay Bunny. I am here at the Chemical Straightjacket headquarters, and uh, joining me today is John Bechtel, a man of, of many projects, many hats, we'll say. And also joining us is Kevin Snell from Chemical Straightjacket, and we're at his uh, base of operations here. How's it going today, guys? Good, good, very good. Had a nice weekend. <laughs> Well, that's great. So, uh, John, I have to say, I, I generally like to pr- feel like I'm prepared when I do these interviews by doing some research ahead of time. But honestly, it was hard to find information about you. Like, I was able to find information about, like, bands you were in and stuff. But it seems like every website just copy and pasted your biography from Wikipedia, which is like four sentences long. Mm-hmm. And that biography states that John Bechtel was born on August 23, 1964, and is an American keyboardist. He's been part of bands such as Ministry, Fear Factory, Abstinence, Prong, Killing Joke, Murder, Inc., and Brian Brain. He has since worked with False Idols, Ascension of the Watchers, and more recently with the band's Nukes, along with Chris Conley and Esh, Mario Cabada, and many more. Bechtel's sister is a cartoonist and author, Alison Bechtel. John has mentioned in her memoir, Fun Home, and is a major character in the musical adaption. Obviously, I'm sure there's more to you than just this paragraph, the first thing I wanted to ask you is, when did you first get involved in music? Well, first, let's just say it's false icons, not false idols. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know what? I have that written down, and I just <laughs> said it wrong. Excuse <laughs> me. It's happened uh, before. Uh, how did I get started in yeah. music? Yeah. Um, well, at an early age, I took an interest in music. started playing piano when I was five and uh, listened to a lot of music. Uh, my father had an extensive collection Beatles and Stones and some obscure uh, 60s and 70s rock, uh, some, uh, you know, like, you know, maybe Blind Faith and things like that, and a a huge classical collection. So I was exposed to a lot of classical music and I played classical um, and eventually uh, took an interest in guitar, acoustic guitar. I played a little folk guitar, classical guitar, and um, then also uh, got into electric guitar and then was um, interested in, you know, bands like King Crimson. Robert Fripp and Brian Eno and, and how they did uh, experimental things with um, with the uh, electric guitar and uh, began um, doing more experimental things myself with electric guitar and then I discovered synthesizers and that's when it hit home that this is the, the instrument for me because, uh, you know, uh, as a pianist, you know, I was familiar with the keyboard, experimenting with electronics. I had a real interest in that, and the synthesizer offered 
the best of both worlds. Um, by then I was already, you know, playing in high school in cover bands and experimenting with writing my own music and uh, even building my own sound systems and lighting systems and controllers and even uh, building my own guitars and, and just, exper you know, just experimenting. And I didn't have a lot of mentors, so I was really just kind of on, on my own. Um, but, uh, but I was pretty young when I knew that music was, was my future, you know, probably seven or eight years old. Okay, wow. And then it was time to go to college, and I was like, fuck, you know, all it's all right. It's oh, the internet. Yeah, no, cool. this is okay. You can uh, you can so, fuck all you want. Okay, so I was like, fuck. Um, you know, I don't want to just you know go to a conventional college and learn conventional things because I know what I want to do. I'm really interested in electronic music and. I was very interested in computers. This is the very early days, you know, and this was like, you know, 1981-ish, you know, even in high school. It was a very new thing to teach about computers in, in my junior, uh, senior year. And so I did want to learn about computers because uh, I felt that there must be some way to use computers to, to interface and control synthesizers. That, that Somehow that just seemed like uh, something that, 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 that should happen. And, probably would happen and it did happen, but uh, my forays into programming were short. <laughs> I decided I, I wasn't uh, cut out for programming, but well, code and things like that. Yeah, but, yeah. but I knew, uh, you know, enough, I built a small oscillator circuit uh, in college and definitely by then focusing more on music production and programming, you know, synthesizers, um, used some very early computer interfaces and um, computer, uh, you know, synthesizers, but uh, the technology started to, to become available and um, the, the, the uh, MIDI was invented when I was in college, the first uh, universal standardized uh, interface uh, medium uh, to connect uh, all manufacturers' uh, right. um, devices together. And then the Macintosh came out uh, just when I was finishing up college, but it, they hadn't been using it yet to do music. Uh, uh, it wasn't until um, post-college that, uh, that some of the first uh, MIDI interfaces came out for the Macintosh and some of the early sequencers, which, which I started using. So at that point, was using computer-based sequencing from the mid-80s um, into the late-80s, uh, and it's kind of in its infancy, um, still before digital recording. Now computers can do everything, not only the recording, but, uh, but the mixing and the signal processing, and it can even emulate the synthesizers, you know, virtual technology. So now... You know, all you need is a laptop and, you know, a nice interface and a pair of headphones or something to do all the things that we needed. Reel-to-reel -reel tape machines and drum machines and stacks and stacks of synthesizers and racks and signal processing um, to, to do music. So, yeah, in college, I eventually kind of formulated a band and started composing original music and then... Uh, for my final project, I actually recorded in a professional recording studio, um, multi-track studio, and then uh, it, I was ready to kind of, you know, set out on, on a journey, you know, to become a professional musician. And um, I decided to, to make the move to New York City from, from central Massachusetts, where I'd gone to college and had been living for about a year afterwards. And that's when things really started happening for me. I immediately got uh, offered a gig in a band that it was playing out in the New York City area and then eventually did some of my first tours and then that segued uh, uh, into me um, joining one of my all-time favorite bands called Killing Joke. 
that's that takes us right into what I was going to ask right. you next, which, you know, if I'm piecing everything together right from the discography I was able to find on the website discogs.com, it says that you had a release with, with a band, uh, Brian Brain in 89, and then you were with Killing Joke and then Murder Inc. after that in the early 90s before joining Prong in 93. What were some highlights of that period of your career? Well, um, I, like I said, uh, the first band was called Brian Brain, or like you said, um, uh, but I was describing um, with Martin Atkins, who um, was uh, uh, the drummer from uh, Public Image Limited, Pill, um, Johnny Lydon. And so it was immediately like I was this 22-year-old, uh, just moved to New York, and suddenly I was playing with someone famous. Right. And um, like we're, we're um, not only playing, you know, some of the famous clubs in New York City, but also um, touring um, parts of the country um, and uh, doing my first recording, which uh, was the Brian Brain EP. And um, Martin joined Killing Joke, and that's how I got um, hooked up through Killing Joke. But uh, but I was just uh, a huge, huge fan ever since high school, since they first came out, and uh, even through college. And they were still pretty obscure, you know, uh, at least in the U.S., underground, um, but almost like a cult status kind of band um not many people knew about them but the people that did know about them were just obsessed with them and right, uh, right. they were just a band uh, the, apart they weren't like anything else they weren't new wave they weren't punk they weren't metal they weren't hardcore they weren't rock and roll i mean nobody knew what they really were and it didn't matter because they were killing joke and they had their own sound they used synthesizers but they also had a post-punk kind of edge and even some elements of metal the intensity of metal which i did like because i was not brought up on metal. I was brought up on electronic music and punk and hardcore, but not metal per se. So that was my beginning. So, you know, so really kind of propelled from, from one thing to another very quickly. So I got the opportunity to work with Killing Joke and, um, and record on their album Extremities, Dirt and Various Repressed Emotions, which recorded in London in the summer of 1990. So I quit my job and um, bought a Bought a plane ticket to London, had never been out of the country, and, and I bought a sampler and a synthesizer and uh, some of the newer technology that they had not, you know, really known about, you know, this, uh, they knew about sampling, but, you know, the, uh, this was a higher level of sampling technology, newer, you know, type of sampling technology and um, some newer synthesis technology and just kind of bringing some new blood and some new ideas. Even though most of the songs were written, one of the songs uh, was still in development. It was called Inside the Termite Mound. And that was one that I got to really kind of, you know, add uh, and contribute to, which, uh, you know, was very special. Really enjoyed, you know, play, playing that song. But, uh, but nonetheless was essentially a hired gun, a uh, live member per se. But, you know, I did work in the studio. Um, I was credited on the album as um, you know, uh, additional sounds and technical support, and I did play a lot of the a lot of the guide tracks and some of the tracks that w were still used on the record, and uh, I did play a couple of a couple of the keyboard parts on the album. So you know, like I said, at that point I was maybe uh, 25, 26 years old, recording in some of the most prestigious studios uh, in London and perhaps the world, and then you know, working with one of my all-time favorite bands. And uh, ultimately, that led to touring, um, which uh, then was touring uh, Europe, um, places you know I'd never been to Europe before, and uh, more extensive touring in the U.S. So my first shows were done on the West Coast, and um, found myself, you know, at, in my mid-twenties, being a professional musician, um, which is what I set out to do. 
Oh, that's fantastic. And then, as I mentioned, from there you went to, to the Prong. Well, Murder, Inc. Uh, was, was kind of an offshoot uh, of Killing Joke. It was most of the members of Killing Joke, but it featured Chris Conley on vocals uh, from Ministry and Revolting Cox and Trinitrog. And uh, we made one record, um, but then um, Killing Joke reformed uh, with their Pandemonium record. And uh, then the bass player, Paul Raven, and I um, joined Prong. Right. Um, and that was... Uh, Kind of like a foray into metal for me, and uh, we we made the the Prong Cleansing album, which was a landmark record. Really, we toured with White Zombie and uh, Pantera and Sepultura and Bad Brains, and uh, and we we uh, headlined um, U.S. and Europe, um, and uh, that that was a, a monumental record. People still talking about that Pantera tour, and um, you can still hear "Snap Your Fingers, Snap Your Neck" on the radio. We're featured on Beavis and Butthead and, and MTV. Right, so, right. yeah, so by my late 20s, you know, I was kind of a veteran rock musician. Yeah, and I was going to say, like, that record and that and that single, like, how does it feel to just have that on your resume? <laughs> well, I mean, at that time, like I said, in my late 20s, already kind of a veteran. <laughs> and then um, I went on to start uh, producing, which was a passion that I had. Um, I had this degree in music production. And uh, I had worked with some amazing producers by then. Steve Albini did the Murder, Inc. record, and uh, Terry Date did the, uh, the Prong record. And so I learned, um, you know, uh, working with some, some, you know, some of the best engineers in the world and producers. And I uh, uh, was fascinated with, you know, the, the, you know, the uh, mic placement and choice of microphones and things that, you know, that producers you know, should know about, you know, not all producers, some producers, they're not really technical people. They just use, mm -hmm. you know, engineers to do that. Um, they just have a vision and a, you know, kind of a name. For, you know, for, say I've heard of certain people that have a reputation for be, being a certain way. Well, like, yeah, like one of my favorite uh, producers, um, uh, well, I mean, Steve, Steve Lillywhite uh, would be, would be one. Um, uh, bear with me here. Um, produced uh, Art of Noise. He was in The Buggles. Produce Seal. Trevor. Trevor Horn. Yeah. Oh, sorry. So, um, yes, one, uh, one of my uh, favorite producers. And I saw a documentary with him recently where he said, yeah, hey, I, I had engineers. I, I, <laughs> I didn't know anything about technology. And I was just like, <laughs> mind blown. He had so, vision. Yeah, <laughs> so, uh, so I, yeah, was, was more of a nuts and bolts kind of kind of guy. And uh, But you know, I didn't have a lot of money to start out. Um, you know, I just had, you know, the basic microphones, um, quality microphones. I had a, uh, a professional reel-to-reel -reel machine and like an old Soundcraft console and uh, just a little bit of outboard gear, um, but uh, gradually built up into uh, digital mixing and then onto digital recording um, because at first some of the digital technology was not, I mean, it was kind of thin, it didn't have the low end. I mean, I was an analog kind of guy, you know, right, but right. The, the future was, was, was coming and it was in digital. And so, uh, you know, I did that and um, eventually started uh, recording and producing um, on digital and mixing in digital and, uh, and learning uh, plugins uh, were invented and started using uh, plug-in technology. But always, you know, just really kind of having to beg, borrow and steal, you know, to kind of, you know, build, build it up. You know, mm -hmm. I, didn't, I didn't have a lot of money, but um, I did have a vision and I knew what I wanted to do. <clears throat> I started producing bands in 1995 so okay, wow. you know i've basically a 25 year career of producing and now with doing chemical straitjacket we've uh, we've achieved something that uh, neither one of us done like uh, create something that's uh, charted on on uh, rock, rock radio national metal radio 
I was gonna say, you know, the, uh, I feel now I feel silly that I because uh, your your name came to my attention in relation to Straight Jacket. Like I was familiar with the bands that you were in, but I was not aware of your production work mm-hmm. until then. So now I feel like, wow, I missed out on all of this other stuff. <laughs> well, um, you know, I have been in a lot of ways a shadowy figure. Um, you know, um, you know, these bands are that I've worked with, of course, are monumental and influential, but yeah, I'm kind of like a footnote in a lot of those bands, but... Uh, the, there was a documentary made about John two years ago? A few years back, yeah, um, where, where, where we, uh, we wanted to capture, you know, get some of this information out there, and by the way, we are trying to upgrade that Wikipedia page. I, I've, I've added <laughs> I know. a lot of material. And, We've uh, had that d- discussion yeah, before. Um, uh, it's a little embarrassing because people, you know, keep bringing it up and, uh, uh, yeah, it's time to time to update that. But, uh, but the title time, of your the documentary about you is... Killing the Joke, yes. And it's on Vimeo um, and it tells the story. It uh, tells a lot, but not all of it. There's still, you know, so many things. Last night uh, I did an interview with Kevin for Straight Talk, um, Ghost Wave, and uh, we um, covered some stuff that, you know, probably people People haven't 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 even heard yet. Um, so uh, yeah, and I've you know I mean I didn't set out to be like necessarily like a household name or anything like that. I just wanted to, to, to make music and be in bands and work in studios and be able to make a living making music. You know I mean of course uh, when I was younger I think I had the same um, fantasies that we all had of being a rock star and everything. And I and I got to thinking about it and I'm thinking like well I suppose it's kind of like bittersweet you know I mean to not be able to walk out the door and be yourself and um, mm-hmm. and uh, and then always having these ex- expectations that once you you know once you're this famous rock star you got to kind of stay there you know what I mean and to me I just um, I just want to make quality music be happy with with what I do so, and I'm you know kind of quiet kind of you know kind of uh, you know more introverted type, type of person but right. uh, you know with the uh, development of my own band false icons I found myself thrust from behind the keyboard um, to, to being a front man and um, uh, it turned out that it was kind of natural for me I, I'm not one of those people I never like the bands that run around like high-fiving and handing out shots and yeah, like, yeah. talking mm-hmm. for 20 minutes between every song you know uh, <laughs> I was just like a no-nonsense kind of guy let's just play the music and let the music speak for itself but uh, I did find that um, even though well, it was Kevin and I were talking this morning and it's like, wow, I mean, if you think about it, after being in all those bands to have the nerve and the balls to be able to go out and say, I'm going to do my own thing. Well, right. I was going to uh, ask you what, what inspired that. Well, I mean, stupidity, because <laughs> a smart person probably wouldn't do that. But uh, but I, ha- I still had more in me that, that I couldn't do with these other bands, even though I got to contribute um, on some levels. Um, I was a producer, I was a songwriter, I was a programmer, I had m- way more to offer. And that's one of the reasons I left Fear Factory, because I just I wasn't breaking out of that mm-hmm. just kind of hired gun, live member kind of guy, even though I did get to contribute um, on a small scale. I had more to offer, and um, I, I felt that I still had my own thing to do. And, um, and I'm a humble person, so I like, knew that like, you know, I'm not going to go out and be playing large clubs like the bands that I was in or have the kind of following, but, you know, I never cared about any of that. To me, playing to 50 people is no different than playing to 50,000 people. Right. Um, in fact, sometimes uh, I got more of a thrill at least interfacing with people because um, my first big festival, the thing I noticed most was like, 
the people were so far away, they looked like ants and like, um, and uh, it was just this, this massive sea. It was very surreal, um, yeah. but it didn't have the intimacy and the, the, the kind of interaction that you get from being in a club and just, you know, seeing the people like right there and just, um, you know, just like the connection that you get. So um, I always knew that we would be starting out small and I had no problem with that. I suppose some people would find that difficult. And in some cases when bands that are really big end up kind of like going down, I think they have a struggle dealing with that, you sure. know. Um, I'm, I'm just not one of those people. I, as long as anybody's interested in what I'm doing, I'm happy. And, uh, and I'm not in it for the money or in it for the fame or glory or anything like that. I, I really am in it because that's what I do. And it's what drives me and what keeps me going. But it is great when people do appreciate it. Like one time I was doing an interview for False Icons and um, the interviewer said, you know, I was interviewing a band like last week and I asked the keyboard player who his uh, most influential keyboardist was and he mentioned John Bechtel. <laughs> I was like, well, that's kind of like the biggest honor you can have. And, you know, some t from time to time I'll be somewhere or flying somewhere and people someone will recognize me and stuff. So it kind of, you know, makes makes you feel, you know, appreci appreciated. Um, and I've worked with some of the most amazing people. So mm -hmm. it's kind of like, you know, worked with Joey Jordison from Slipknot. He played drums on the first ministry, ministry tour yeah. that I did. And, you know, working with Al Jorgensen and, and mm -hmm. you know, the guys from Killing Joke, you know, being on say like Mike Scotia from ministry. And then right. uh, with uh, that first incarnation of ministry that I was in, uh, Tommy Victor from Prong and right, Paul right. Raven. So there was all this kind of, you know, people that I had worked with in the past. And it was kind of like coming full circle. And, um, and yeah, uh, it, um, it, it had its moments, but there's so much work also that, that, that I think people don't realize that goes involved. They just look, think it's like, oh, you know, wow, that just sounds so amazing, you know, and, and there are moments, there are special moments, but they're, they're kind of few and far between where you really feel that sense of like, wow, you know. But uh, another thing too is that some people, you know, I might say, hey, yeah, like 20 years ago, I did this, I was in this band that had a little bit of notoriety and we, we kind of put out a record. Or, but for me, li literally a, a, a 33 year career of professional touring and working with some of the most influential bands uh, of, of modern music. So that that's pretty exciting, but yet, my real passion um, is doing my own thing, and you know, now I have a solo record that I'm doing. It's just me. Uh, False Icons is more of a, uh, a band, although I'm the main writer. Uh, it's a live band with a drummer and a bass player and a keyboard player, and right. I play guitar and sing. Still, you know, doing m new things. I have a band with Burton C. Bell from uh, Fear Factory, Fear Factory called right. Ascension of the Watchers. Yeah, and, and I wanted to ask you about that. I don't mean to, to cut you off, but there was something that you're in that band with Burton, Ascension of the Watchers, and I just wanted to know how that came together because I, when I was doing the research, I did I found a, a blabbermouth article that described you as a mentor in music, philosophy, and demeanor who unwittingly guided Bell along the creative path of this new conceptual movement. Wow, who did I pay to do that? <laughs> <laughs> wasn't... Uh, uh, so, I'll, I'll have to do that when I get interviewed. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to make Well, uh, you know, yeah, so um, I guess uh, I am a very humble person, but yeah, sometimes I should just, you know, go ahead and take credit. So let's, let's, uh, <laughs> let's say Burton had come to visit me at my uh, home and studio and, and loved the, the country atmosphere 
and the idea of, of a studio um, in, the, in the woods and um, he said he would like to come back and uh, record there so I was like great you know um, let's do it so uh, after that that was the Digimortal tour for Fear Factory uh, we had some time kind of a hiatus for Fear Factory and um, he uh, drove cross country from LA to Pennsylvania and um, all he brought was a guitar and like a like a multi-effect pedal and uh, I thought he would be bringing some kind of demo song, something <laughs> comprehensive, you know, that I could, you know, wrap myself around. So, um, like I did. Yeah, yes, yes, <laughs> exactly. Yes, yes. Uh, so uh, I got behind the desk and he pulled out his guitar and I didn't, I've never heard him play guitar. And um, he started plucking away and he had this delay pedal that he was kind of using the delays to kind of carry the tune and um, it was very rudimentary and elementary and you know he clearly wasn't a, a really developed guitar player but I quickly gathered myself together <laughs> and uh, like uh, any professional pr producer <laughs> has to do and um, I was like okay well yeah it's kind of mesmerizing uh, the way it just kind of looped around and stuff and then I got to thinking well it makes sense because I've spent time living with Burton when I was working with Fear Factory and his CD collection, there's no metal, maybe some Black Sabbath records. And my CD collection, you're not going to find any metal. Probably the most metal thing would be a D. Krupp's mm -hmm. uh, Metallica tribute. <laughs> 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 and so then it clicked. Okay, um, this isn't a Fear Factory record because that's what I thought it was going right. to sound like. Mm -hmm. And it made perfect sense that Burton wanted to do something very different. And I had all these vintage synthesizers sitting around collecting dust that weren't getting used in these metal bands that I was in. And I thought, wow, what a perfect opportunity to use some of these synths and some of these wonderful sound banks that I haven't used and, and to really um, go back to my roots. And, and so I started to realize that Burton and I did have some common ground, say like with Joy Division and Early Cure. He was a big, a big Nick Cave fan. I did not know Nick Cave that well, even though he was on Mute Records. It's a little bit more of a goth industrial thing, which I did not, you know, wasn't too much into goth. I mean, I like Susie and the Banshees and The Cure, but um, I was more of an industrial and also electronic guy. I was a big Kraftwerk yeah. fan and bands like Cabaret Voltaire and uh, Depeche Mode. Um, so, yeah, we started to build around these guitar ideas and add some rhythmic loops and program some drums. And then I uh, tinkered around with, I uh, play a little bass. And um, at this point, he had still had no uh, lyrics or vocal ideas. It was uh, strictly music. And we put together a few songs, you know, Moonshine, Residual Presence, through the first, some of the first songs, Evading. And I asked him at one point, I said, so, um, you know, who's going to produce this album? And he goes, well, you are. <laughs> <laughs> so then I realized that, um, that I was going to have, you know, a bigger role and more responsibility. And we were really close at that point, and we worked well together. But it, it took time, you know, uh, a good producer and a good musician always gets better, you know, okay, always okay. improving their, their, their skills and um, their, you know, I, get, I hear things and sometimes uh, totally, you know, learn new production techniques and um, develop new writing styles. But uh, at the same time that Ascension of the Watchers was formed, um, I solidified my own band, False Icons, which had already, you know, been kind of uh, in the works with uh, 
guy named Brian Brote, a local guy that I had met when I first moved uh, back to Pennsylvania. And at first it was supposed to be kind of like a, a duo, just electronic, probably no guitars, no vocals or anything like that, techno music. And um, it was cool, but I thought, you know, even at that time, you know, in the late 90s, early 2000s, there was plenty of laptop bands to yeah, go yeah. around. And I thought, like, I've been in all these organic bands, you know, that played live, you know, and had amazing drummers. Like, why would I not go, you know, have some of that influence in my music? So um, I decided to add a, a live drummer, and then we are working with a bass player, and it, and it turned into a band, you know. And then... Uh, my bass player sang a bit, I sang a bit, uh, just by default, and then um, turned out I was singing on every track, and so I suddenly realized, and, and at one point I thought I was just going to play keyboards for this band, and uh, and I started playing more and more guitar, which, you know, I had not done in a long time, really, um, since Brian Brain played guitar in a band, so suddenly I just found myself being the front man, you know, it just, it, it, just, it seemed weird to be, like with Killing Joke, Jazz was the keyboard player and the singer, doesn't work too good. He eventually, in order to be a front man, had to hire uh, another guy to play the keyboards. And right. then, so I'm thinking about, you know, what would it be like if I was singing in behind the keyboard? And I'm like, it just, I mean, it'd be great if it worked, but just didn't see it working. So, um, like I said, I was playing more guitar, singing more. So I thought, well, I guess I'm going to play guitar and sing, and then somebody else is going to play the keyboards. And then I got a bass player and a drummer. So, um, so that's how False Icons came together. And it's the same time period that The Watchers happened um, from 2002 and 2003 into 2004. Um, yep. Those years that uh, Factory was on hiatus uh, is when that all happened and we started right. doing our first shows in 2005 together playing shows together and touring together the watchers and false icons you know doing double duty i ultimately did one more record with fear factory called the uh, uh archetype. archetype record yeah um and uh did a little touring on that we went to australia played the big day out we did the uh slip slipknot uh jägermeister tour and then i decided it was time to move on from fear factory and I wanted to, to really um, give, give a go with uh, False Icons, which sounds, you know, maybe a bit crazy to some people. But like I said, I, I wasn't really going anywhere. It was just really a gig uh, with Fear Factory. And um, I, I felt I had more to offer at that point in my life. I was into my late 30s, you know. I spent a year getting False I Icons off the ground and then got a call from Paul Raven about uh, joining ministry the end of uh, 2005 and ultimately took that job in early 2006 and so then once again false icons said something got put he, on he said no uh, well i mean yeah he said no to me i i <laughs> did I, I know it's at the time yeah, i had three young children and um the idea of going on an extensive tour seemed to be a bit much my first thoughts were like as much as it would add to my resume you know i mean um it is a logical progression yeah. when you think about it you know uh, family's important and um i i felt like well hey anybody can just go new world order new world order you know, like, <laughs> they don't need me and and then and they kept talking to me about saying how, you know, like, you know, we do it old school style. By then, a lot of bands were using backing tracks and computers and like, no, we use Akai samplers. And you, too, have a career of using the Akai samplers live. And um, we've only talked to a few other people that, that, that could even remotely do this job. And, um, and we didn't feel too confident with them. So they, they called me back a few weeks later and said, would you just come out? at least, and map out the, all the songs for this album, the Rio Grande Blood album. Maybe we can, by then, find a keyboard player that you could work with and, and train. And, 
And I was like, yeah, I can do that. So I flew out and Al picked me up and we worked in his studio for a couple of weeks. And we we're also going through archives of not only ministry stuff, but Revolting Cox stuff for the Revolting Cox tour. Because after he parted ways with Paul Barker, I mean, Al ended up with about half of the stuff. And so I just literally had to dig through boxes of old floppy disks and hard drives and zip disks to find what I needed. Uh, later, uh, they were able to extrapolate pretty much everything off of master tapes into Pro Tools, but at that time, it was whatever you could find in his garage. Yeah, that initial run of ministry was from like 06 to 08, and then, you know, Al had said pretty publicly, you know, that he was going to ride out into the sunset with George W. Bush and end the band. And, you know, they were gone for three years. Did, did you think at that point, like, that there was any chance? Cause the, the, we all took bets. Uh, <laughs> I think I was probably the one that got it best. But, you know, to be fair to Al, I mean, he was um, in very poor health. He really didn't think he could do it. Uh, and he wanted to maybe try some other things. He'd been doing it his whole life. You right, know? right, right. So he thought maybe getting more into production. And he, he started his own label and built a, built a studio. But sadly, um, you know, labels were dying and, and big studios were dying and he didn't die. So, you know, he had to move on and pay the bills. And so, uh, yeah, um, he came back with the album Relapse and called me up and said, what do you think? And uh, we had lost our guitar player, Mike Skasha, right after uh, that tour. Then he found himself once again, like, what do I do? Uh, how do I go on without Mikey? He was my you know, my right-hand man, you know, yeah. and co-wrote a lot of these great records with me. And um, and once again, we were looking at whether or not there would be a future for ministry, and a couple of years went by. He did make a record uh, called uh, From Beer to Eternity, which did right. feature some of Mikey's last contributions. And it offered a little bit of a uh, divergence from the kind of speed metal that we were doing on, say, uh, Rio Grande Blood and Last Sucker and, and the um, House of the Mole, which I felt was the kind of comeback record for, for Al. Um, you know, he had gotten clean and refocused. That's the first album without Paul Barker. And um, and it, it really had a lot of the elements, I think, of, say, The Mind and uh, Psalm 69, you know, which we had, as ministry fans, really kind of missed. And so... Let's see, I was at Cold Waves 3, False Icons played the, uh, the kickoff party, and um, I was, you know, walking around like, yeah, I'm in ministry, and, you know, and everybody was just like, yeah, we don't really talk about ministry here. I'm like, wait, Cold Waves? <laughs> Chicago Industrial Metal and um, Jason Novak, who runs it, you know, wants to talk to me. And, and I was like, oh, I just got off the phone with Al Jorgensen. You know, and I was like, yeah, we don't really talk about him either. You know, um, <laughs> I was like, wow, what kind of industri Chicago Industrial Festival is this? You know, because uh, Al had called me about going back out on the tour uh, from Beer to Eternity. And this would have been uh, late 2014, uh, planning uh, on, on touring extensively in 2015, going around the world, uh, Australia, South Africa, South America, places I had never been before, and um, Central America, and then also uh, an extensive North American tour. And I said yes once again, and this time we had to use some more modern technology. Those old Akai's just weren't going to make it around the world again. Uh, they were too heavy and expensive to ship for one thing, and um, so um, nobody was making samplers anymore. 
so I had to go to using computer-based sampling, but I uh, found a way to, to do it playing the original samples. Native Instruments makes a program called uh, Contact uh, with a K. Uh, it could actually read the Akai programs. Now, not necessarily everything, mostly the maps, the, the tunings, uh, the envelopes, some, uh, but, uh, but not per se the, uh, the output routings and um, some of the other nuanced uh, parameters. So it was quite a, a job to do. But, but I did it, and now I can still play the original samples, but playing them off of laptops instead of dedicated hardware samplers. And we've delved into Ableton, and some of the more sophisticated stuff now does require you know, some playback and stuff. So um, yeah, we've been uh, catching up with, with modern times, and we're all set to go out. Last year on a trip to Japan, Australia, and also to do the Industrial Strength Tour with KMFDM and Frontline Assembly last year, which unfortunately COVID hit, right, and right. Um, so now we've been on hiatus, but we do have a new ministry album completed. All right, awesome. I, I may have heard it. May or may not have. <laughs> may or may not have. Can't confirm nor deny. No. Oh, Can I ask a quick question? Um, why was Ministry Persona Non Grata at, uh, at Cold Waves? Why, could, why would they not talk about it? I ministry? think because Jason was real tight with Chris Connolly. They had a band, and they had various incarnations of Revolting Cox. You know, the Cox or the Cox members or Cox this or that or whatever. Um, they eventually did just flat out call it Revolting Cox. Um, and uh, Chris Conley, and at that time, uh, Al Jorgensen, um, you know, had, had not been on speaking terms. They'd both written books that said bad things about each other. And so, yeah, it just seemed odd to me, like I said, um, that you could have a uh, Chicago-based industrial music festival and not even mention the word ministry. <laughs> yeah. But we found out later, and um, I actually uh, was instrumental in reacquainting uh, Chris Connolly and Al. Because I, you know, after doing Murder, Inc. with Chris Connolly, I bumped into him at the Cold Waves, and still not knowing, you know, that the ministry was kind of like, you know, blacklisted. I just went up <clears> to him and talked to him, and he was like, it's great to see you. and. And over Facebook, we would uh, communicate, and um, and when we were finishing up the uh, album Americant, uh, actually it was that was the day the day it released. Um, I was at Al's having coffee, and Chris Connolly sent me a Facebook message saying, "Hey man, I'm listening to the new album. It's really amazing. I want you to, you know, let Al know when you see him." And I'm like, "Well, I'm sitting here with him right now having <laughs> coffee, so I'll tell him." So I was like, "Hey Al, Chris Connolly really likes the record." And, Al said, "Why don't you ask him if he'll come out and like sing so what with us when we get to Chicago?" But it had to be a big secret, you know. It's like I got to keep it all on the down low. So it was a really big surprise. So we were playing the Riviera sold-out show in Chicago. Chris showed up at Soundcheck. Even people in the opening band didn't even know that what was happening. <laughs> and uh, Burton C. Bell was a guest vocalist on that tour, and so he came out a few times and sang. And then uh, when we got to So What, Al said, well, I have a very special surprise tonight, a uh, guest singer. And everybody thought he was just bringing Burton out again. And then Chris Conley walks on stage. And uh, now I would have to say it was about 50-50 people that recognized him. You know, he didn't have the long dreads anymore. Right. You know, it had been like 30 years. Some people thought maybe he was Burton. Um, <laughs> and, but yet, but uh, if you know Chris, the yeah, nose. Yeah, well, but nose, nonetheless, uh, let's just say... 2,200 people rose to their feet and started cheering and um, knew what was happening. And we, we broke out into So What, which was really uh, a Chris, Chris Connolly song. Right. 
Awesome. And uh, and he and Al sang it together. So yeah, so I I was like the matchmaker there. <laughs> and also, you know, people always talk about the old ministry versus the new ministry, and there's a you know a whole bunch of factions, and even some people that think the first album was the one, you know. And hey, I'm there too. I'm a ministry fan, before, you know, first, and uh, and I and I'm the first one to agree, but. It's not 1989, you know, mm-hmm. and um, even if you could put, um, sadly, most of those people are gone now. Bill Rieflin and Mike Scotia and William Tucker, you know, Paul Raven, you know. Yeah. Uh, but um, even if you could uh, put all those people back on, on the stage, do you think it would sound like the mind tour? No, people grow, they mature, they change, and, and they should, you know. And so ministry persevered and it moved on and it, and it stayed relevant and it, and it continued to make music. I think I had another thing to say about the the kind of bridging, mend, mending of, of of some of these relationships. Uh, but back to your question one more time. The question that we were on was, did you think that ministry was done for good? Okay, right. So um, so that also played into this Wax Tracks tour that we did. It was also kind of bizarre. It kind of came up at a time when we were still working on starting a new record and... Um, uh, we didn't know much about it. It was really weird. It was like not a conventional tour because um, the tickets were going to be free, but you had to get them in a certain way, like on a national record store day, which I had never even heard of. And you had to this be... This was in support of the documentary, yeah, right? Yeah, in support of the Wax Tracks documentary. And there was going to be a band called Cold Cave, and they really wanted ministry um, to, to do it. And they were going to show the documentary and have to these two bands perform. And so it was something that really had never been done. And we were thinking, do these people know what they're doing? And um, they hadn't announced the venue, so we're like, you know, this is like a month away. Who in the hell can book a tour and not have venues uh, right, a right. month away? You know, so we were scratching our heads. And then also, there was this kind of idea that in order for us to get the gig, we had to somehow get Paul Barker back in the band. Mm. And um, there had been discussion and talk because there's these factions and there's some people that refuse to listen or even acknowledge ministry post Barker. Um, you know, the idea that That's he, crazy. well, the idea that he, he, you know, my theory is that because Al was incapacitated on drugs and alcohol, that Paul kind of became the spokesman of the band and more profile. And um, he had been with them through a lot of, these records and uh, you know Paul is really talented but I think to me I just kept thinking like well really Al's the brainchild and and what did Paul do after ministry I mean he's he, now he's doing stuff but for many years he really didn't do much of anything he had a band called USSA which didn't really do much but then he played with Lucifer and then he um, put out new lead into gold and he opened for Ogre and I happened to run into him then at the Ogre show and got to talk to him a little bit just prior to this kind of wax tracks thing. And um, Al had even several times, you know, people had said, look, if you could get Paul Barker back in the band, you guys could probably go back to playing in arenas and stuff like that. This would be, you know, you'd be bringing together all the factions again. And, and, uh, you know, even though they had a falling out, Al was like kind of willing to bury the hatchet. And they'd reached out to Paul a few times, but he was kind of like, yeah, not really, you know, ready, you know, not that he wasn't totally interested, but just wasn't wasn't quite ready to make that leap. And then this Wax Tracks tour somehow, you know, made it so that they once again reached out to him and he still was a little bit like just, you know, not ready. I think he wanted to be back in as a full, you know, like, you know, have half the publishing and everything that he used to have 
you know, was kind of like, yeah, that's not going to happen, you know, yeah. but we'd love to have you on the tour. And um, so Paul ultimately declined, and we thought, well, that's that. So we thought it wasn't happening, and then the Wax Track people came back and said, no, we, we still want to. So then it was back on, and um, and that, when we brought back some of the stuff, that, uh, the Wax Tracks uh, era stuff, um, some of the songs that, for instance, Burning Inside, that Al had said he would never do again, and um, and we finally got to do that, and we brought back Supernaut, um, Thousand Homo DJs, yep. and yep. we even tinkered with some Palehead stuff, but it didn't really happen, but there's always potential for that. And then Paul came out on some of those tours to do Q&A um, after the documentary and Chris Conley, not on the same one. So it was kind of like East Coast, West Coast. Yeah, yeah. I think Paul did uh, West Coast and uh, Chris did East Coast. And so there was, you know, a lot of pictures of Al with Chris Conley and with Paul Barker. So, you know, there was some talk about, wow, you know, could this be? You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Um, and then there was talk about some tribute, you know, like maybe a mine tribute or a a psalm tribute or a filth pig tribute tour, you know, but ultimately, if you think about it, some of us have been in ministry way longer than any of those other people were, you know, I've been in 15 years now and sin almost as long, you know, now I've got Paul Demore from Tool on bass and right. working with a new drummer, London May, who uh, will be coming out with us when we do start touring again, so you just can't go back and I'll... It's like, I've done that, I've done this, I've yeah, done yeah. that. Because you know, we were, after the Wax Tracks thing, we are like, let's bring back some of that Wax Tracks style. And he was just like, I can do that for eight bars and then I'm over it, you know. So, <laughs> uh, when does uh, Stephen George come back? Right. Well, people have said about that, too, because a lot of people don't even know. Like, they're like, what about the original guys, you know, like Martin Atkins? And they're like, uh, hello. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to circle back on uh, Ascension of the Watchers and False Icons, if we could, for a second. Uh, what I wanted to ask in regard to Ascension of the Watchers was, you know, Burton has departed Fear Factory now and has said that that and, and, and other projects are going to be his focus now. So is there more music happening for Ascension of the Watchers at this time? Or, or? Well, we just released an album. Right, it just came out back in October. Yeah, so, um, yeah, and we can't really tour. So we're doing some remixes to help promote the record. We're just going to have to, like everybody else, see see, see what, what happens. happens. But, yeah, let's see, 12 years in between the first and second record. Right, so don't right. get, you know, yeah, don't yeah. hold your breath. <laughs> sure, sure. And then, and then as far as False Icons, uh, what I could find is that you guys put out a, a record in, in 08. Same thing. And uh, on Al's label, yeah. And then, um, yeah, not too much. Uh, I did a self-produced uh, EP around uh, 2013 um, and toured the band in 13 and 14. And then I got back into ministry. And so since then, we had five consecutive years of ministry. So uh, I was, you know, still working on some false icons, but, you know, ministry was my main priority. But now with uh, last year being off, I got um, false icons back up and running. Um, we did two shows, uh, one with Chemical Straightjacket in fe fe February and January, and then COVID hit. And right, so right. Ministry went dark, and uh, everybody went dark, and that included False Icons. So I'm um, working on new False Icons and hoping to uh, get that back up and running and release uh, another album. Uh, maybe even release that EP, which um, a lot of people haven't heard, you know. So, you know, when you're involved with so many things, right, um, right, right. It's, it's hard. Uh, and I'm 
quality over quantity. Uh, some bands just crank stuff out constantly. Right. And, you know, it's hit or miss. Uh, I'm just not one of those people, you know. Um, I'd rather take my time and, and do it right. Okay. In addition to all of the other stuff that we talked about, like I said, a lot of the information that I pulled was from the website discogs.com. Mm-hmm. Which which is comprehensive for, for my accomplishments, but it doesn't tell you the backstory. Right, Wikipedia right. Wikipedia is really, and, um, you know. And, not... so, and so one thing that I saw on Discogs that I want, just because I'm always skeptical when it comes to the Internet. You've got to be. Um, and so one of the things that it said on that site was that you you have some credits on releases by Davy Jones of the Monkees. And I wanted to know first, is that true? That's true. And then secondly, if it is, how did that come to be? Okay, well, I started producing in 1995 when I moved back to Pennsylvania. I always wanted, uh, well, not always, but at a certain point, uh, after working at Pachyderm Studios doing the Murder, Inc. record, there was a 40-acre estate outside Minneapolis, world-class studio in the woods. uh, And I was like, wow, this is the way to work. You know, not these, like dingy, dirty New York studios that, you know, you might get mugged when you walk out the door. You know, and sometimes when we recorded albums, you know, you walk out to your car and your equipment was stolen, you know, in the five minutes it took you to like, you know, take your drum kit into the studio, you know, so I was over all that, you know, just having to be really careful, you know, having an arsenal of vintage synthesizers in an apartment, you know, because I'd heard stories about people trying to do like, you know, projects, you know. Uh, maybe like with this hip hop band, they show up and duct taped them to the chair and took all of his equipment. You know? <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, I was over that. And the first band I produced in that studio, oh, I did a little bit, bit of prong stuff with Raven and Ted. They came down. That was the very first thing when we first set up the studio. And then um, I started working with some local bands, uh, some punk bands and some uh, alternative bands. And one of them was a guy named John Blair who uh, worked with Davy Jones, who also lived in the area. Okay. Uh, Beaver Springs, which was like 15 minutes, 20 minutes away from from my studio. And he had been recording with this guy, John Blair. And John Blair discovered my studio and was recording in it. And he said, I'd like to do a record with Davey. And I'm like, great. So, yeah, next thing I know, like my third or fourth client um, in the woods, um, car rolls up and Davey Jones gets out and comes in, starts singing in my studio. That's awesome. pretty cool. Yeah. Now, how uh, we mentioned earlier, you produced Chemical Straightjacket. How did how did they come to your attention? Well, do you want to jump in? Okay, so uh, you tell it better. Okay, well, we have a mutual friend, uh, Sandy Datcher, who um, loves live music, loves to um, go to concerts, and um, she had been trying to snag tickets for Thrill Kill Call. Well, actually, it just showed up on my Instagram, like, like reduced ticket or $10 tickets to Thrill Kill Call. But you were already on tour. Yeah, but you wanted to see I did, Thrill Kill I Call. did, and it just, like, magically just, like, okay. rolled up on my IG feed, and I'm like, dang, this is, like, <laughs> destiny, and I reached out to... Um, well, there were these free... No, no not free. No, there were $10 tickets. Yeah, okay, yeah. $10, and, like, I'll go see Thrill Kill Call mm-hmm. for 10 bucks, sure, mm-hmm. and... There were two dates. There was a New York date and then a Jersey date, like almost back to back. You were already on tour, and I was trying to fill my days with, you know, good music while you were gone. And I hit hit up the person who made the post. I had no idea that it was actually Kevin Snow from Chemical Street. <laughs> I thought it was just some PR firm, like handing out tickets or whatever. And I'm like, yeah, how can I get the tickets? I was like, yeah, um, just PayPal me $10 and I'll, I'll mail them to you. <laughs> <laughs> hey, PayPal you $10. I'm like, I don't have a PayPal account that's working. So we're like kind of working through that. And then it, it dawned on me that, you know, I was actually talking to Kevin Self from Chemical Straightjacket. And then I'm like, 
who the hell is that? You know, <laughs> I don't know who they are. So. Well, you started talking to him. Yeah, just and he, Well, the tickets arrived in yeah, the mail. Yeah, they came in the mail. And he was like, just forget about the $10. Yeah, or pretty much, yeah. And then oh. he sent me two sets of tickets for the New York show and the Jersey show. Uh, a CD, a couple of stickers. Couple, yeah, yeah, stickers. Yeah. 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 So, Nobody else wants it. The next thing I know, I'm getting a call from Sandy saying... Um, that she's going to this show and um, starting to talk about this band, Chemical Straightjacket, which I had not heard of either. And then she went, and really, you stole the show, right? Well, yeah, well, prior to that, um, when I was just doing my research, just trying to figure out who they were, like, it, the, the video came up, um, Dressed to Kill, on, yeah, on right YouTube. Here. That was the only thing I could find. Nothing else, no Wikipedia, n n no other anything. And I kept, when I, the video came up, and I see Kevin rolling in on the motorcycle with the ministry helmet on. And I listened to him, like, it was badass. It was so good. I'm like, I just assumed that they all knew each other. You know, I'm like, then I just kind of, you always assume that famous people know famous people. Actors know actors. And musicians know musicians. Well, that you had been around and That you had been around while, forever. But that you just hadn't heard of them. Right, right exactly. Yeah. And then I was That's like. That's what you thought, yes. Yeah, and I was like <laughs> kicking myself. I'm like, how did this band slip under the radar? How did I not know them? And so I called John up, and he was already on tour. I'm like, you know, who are these guys? They're, they're great. And he goes, I don't know who they are. I'm like, yes, you do. He goes, no, I don't. I'm like, John, you know who they are. Because I don't think I've ever heard of them before. I'm like, all right, well, forget you. <laughs> so I went to the show, and it was incredible. Was and then, the and it was the third live show they've ever done. And I'm like, this is crazy. <laughs> like, who does this? Like, who puts that kind of production on their third time out? I mean, third time playing anywhere. And well, you wouldn't believe the sales pitch I got, man. I got the phone <laughs> oh, yeah. And she was like, if you don't work with these people, you're crazy. You know, I don't know how the conversation went about maybe looking for a producer, but you told them that you knew because you saw that they liked ministry. Yeah, yeah, like, that oh, was well, a good uh, you know, I know John Bechtel. <laughs> Actually, it was a bit more mysterious okay, than okay. that. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. It was yeah. kind of like a mistake. It was like so, a, so I yes, sent her right. the, the tickets and all that's that stuff. Right. And then I get this cryptic message saying one good turn deserves another. Oh, yeah. And so I'm like, okay, um, I'm officially talking to a lunatic. <laughs> I'm married. I'm married. I'm married. Me and Misha are actually at a bar in Manhattan, and I get this message on Instagram, one good turn deserves another. So I'm like, all right. Let's see if we can work this out. <laughs> Tickets? <laughs> Some, what? I have no idea what that means, but I, I'm going to play along, of course. We, you know? we, we joked. We were like, But at this point, I don't know who Sandy is. I don't right. know that you, she has the, she, this connection to yeah. ministry at all. That was part of the, the mystery. You said, you don't know who I am. I'm not on social media. I don't have I really presence. don't. I, I'm not don't. out there. You, have, you couldn't know who I am. She and said, yeah, you were so kind, and you sent oh, me this stuff. Oh, right, yeah. Right, well, yeah, and, I mean, yeah. it's just like, I'm nobody, you know, but yet, you know, Kevin saw somebody who wanted to see a show, and he just, he sent me everything. He sent me tickets, he sent me CDs, he, he sent me everything, and I thought, wow, this is just absolutely incredible, and just out of the karma. Yeah, and just like, you know, treating a fan the way fans really want to be treated by, mm -hmm. you know, the, the bands that they go out and support. Yeah, give you us free stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? I mean, you can listen to it for free. On Are you going to eat that pizza? <laughs> <laughs> can when I have I, a beer? <laughs> you can. Well, when 
I knew then, then it started clicking to me. So then I had other conversations with Kevin. Then I realized, okay, there's no connection to ministry there. You know, that you know, I was kind of piecing it together. So then I thought, how can I do something really nice for this guy? He gave me these tickets. He invited me out to see his band. He gave me T-shirts. He loaded me up with swag. What can I do for him? And so then I thought, you know what? The least I can do is leverage my contact with John and at least get them backstage or to meet some of the band members and so I was like kind of arranging this with John and John was like you know we're really busy and I was like, we're, this is work for us you know like, you know we don't just sit around you know just like like meeting people he goes like there's there's stuff to do and I'm like I know but please just once will you do this for me he was like these just just say hello to these guys just meet them I'm like they put on an amazing show and I just want you to meet them. Just meet them. And he was like... (sighs) (laughs) On our side, side, what I'm getting is, are you going to see ministry in Montclair? I was like, of course. You know, the whole band has tickets. We'll be there. Okay, well, when you get there, don't go inside, but text me. Something's going to happen. So now I'm like, this person's really fucking crazy. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm going to text her. Kidnapped. Yeah, like somebody's going to hit me with a bat or something. They're so, they're so, perplexing. so uh, you know, I, I'm like, uh, tell the whole band, I'm like, you know, let's go, have my back. Because when I send this text, anything could happen. <laughs> so we got there really early because that's the way I do things. And we got fairly tanked up. And then we went <laughs> and I, I saw the, the tour bus and we're standing on the sidewalk and I text this mysterious woman. <laughs> and she's like, look at the bus. So I'm like, I see the bus. And John walks out. Danger Dadger. <laughs> and John walks out and I'm like, holy fuck. Like, holy shit. You know, and he comes over, hey, are you Kevin from Chemical Straight Jacket? And I'm like, yeah. And then, now... I already knew that to get to the next level, we needed production because mm-hmm. our, our debut was made in my laundry room. Okay, and mm-hmm. um, I had no idea what I was doing. You know, we just we kind of knew how to write a song, right? But we didn't know how to make it sound proper. Um, so I already had that in the back of my mind. So the minute I see this guy, I'm like, oh, that, you know, this this has to happen. <laughs> so you know, I want everybody to behave properly. We gotta have this first meeting go well, you know, so that we can try to work, you know, to 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 actually work with John and and get him to produce us. And I wanted to learn from him, because I hadn't made music in almost thirty years. Right. You know, I'm so out of it. And um, yeah, it was a it was a great first meeting. It was, like super nice guy. Now to go back. I did to, call you once. You did call me Sandy once. Sandy was yes. trying to put this thing together. She was like, "You." And you, you had some trepidations about me because of my lyrics. Uh, well, that that came later. <laughs> yeah, I hadn't yeah. really got delved into that yet. But Sandy, from the get go, was trying to put this together. She's like, "You need to work with this band." Yeah, if you don't yeah. work yeah, with she them, was like, I mean, it'll be the biggest mistake of your life yeah. if you don't. Because if you don't, someone yeah. else will. She's like, "These guys are going places. It. You'll regret it if yeah. you don't." Um, these guys, they it turns out that they're a new band, and um, you know this was only their third show, and they're already they have merchandise and a professional show, and. Um, you would not know that they're they're just a new band, and just imagine if they can do all that in that amount of time, where they're going to be in a year or two, and if you don't get involved with them, you know, you're missing out on the big opportunity. I mean, she really worked it, you know, and and, um, and so I was like, I'll I'll call I'll call their guy. Yeah. Okay. Now, now I can tell you from my perspective. <laughs> 
Pete, so you said if, if a Pennsylvania phone number calls you, answer it. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's it. You won't, you just, if a Pennsylvania phone number calls, answer it. He's at work filling prescriptions. Oh, right, yes, I forgot and that. And yes. the phone rings, mm -hmm. and it's Pennsylvania phone number, mm -hmm. and he's like, guys, i got to take this phone call. And he went in the back of the pharmacy. I think he laid on the floor because he was about <laughs> to pass out. And answered mm -hmm. the phone, hi, this is John Bechtel, you know, da, da, da. And Kevin was just beside himself. He was like, what? Like, you know where I was? No way. Grand Rapids, Michigan. Where are you? Oh, you remember that? Well, you remember everything. Oh, okay, so. yeah. <laughs> so, Kevin texted At the Panera Bread. John called me. Filled prescriptions the rest of the day. If you did, oh, I could. You, I was you, like, you, you, you probably killed somebody because yeah. <laughs> you're just out, yeah. out. Yeah, my crew covered crazy. for me because after that, I was just like, oh my god, this is crazy. And it was the guy that I saw on stage in, in City Gardens playing for Killing Joke 25 years ago with Mike and Frosty right next mm -hmm. to me. Yeah, he's now playing in ministry. He's right, who's right. now in ministry. He's been in every one of my favorite bands. I'm a keyboardist, he's like the keyboardist. Then to get that call was insane, and then to meet it was insane. And I well, thought, I mean, we just talk like regular people, right? Yeah, because you are just that down to earth <laughs> as these guys are witnessing right now. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, and I was saying actually yesterday because we went snow tubing, yeah. and every once in a while, now I just think of John as my friend, but once in a while it hits me. You're snow tubing with John Bechtel from Ministry, <laughs> you know? And I'm just like, I have to take a minute and be like. That's fucking crazy. I have those moments too, like when I'm hanging out with Al, you know, because we spend a lot of time just together because, you know, the keyboard job is very integral, you know, with, okay. with ministry and it's very important. And Al likes two people to be really copacetic and, and, uh, and yeah, they, they did offer me the job a second time because he really felt like that I was the guy. So yeah, so it's fun. Like, you know, we'd go out, you know, to get a bite to eat or something. I'm sitting there just chilling out, eating lunch with Al Jorgensen, you know, so, you know, I know how. I know yeah, how. It's, it's a bit surreal yeah. sometimes, mm -hmm. you know, but over time you become more and more friends mm -hmm. and, and then those moments just hit you once in a while and mm -hmm. you're just like, whoa, like, mind blown, mind blown. yes. Mm -hmm. Like, um, when you, we had the uh, release party for Wretched Things mm -hmm. and you're on the phone in my garage talking to Al. Mm -hmm. Like, hey Al, yeah, I'm, I'm at my friend's, you know, Chemical Stranger, and I'm like, <laughs> thing, you know? to, to start making music again when you're 47 mm -hmm. which is what I was when we put out the debut mm -hmm. and to have this all happen mm -hmm. because of her is, uh, is pretty crazy it's, it was just meant to be it was like one of those things that came from the universe well it's so funny how like you know she really really you know worked it and I was just like oh, I'm so busy uh, I'm yeah. on tour, I'm Sandy. On tour. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, I don't have time and uh, for then you sent me the video, and yeah. I watched it. Mm -hmm. And you know, I saw you on your bike with your ministry helmet. And I'm like, cool, okay, you know. And I'm like, all right. And then um, we talked, mm -hmm. and then um, you know, uh, you sent me some material. Mm -hmm. um, first, I think some MP3s, then some some actual stems, and uh, I actually started tinkering. Now this would have been some material from Dress to Kill. Okay, yes. And I started tinkering. Right. Upon the Hill. Yeah, I started right, tinkering right. with that and sending you back, just so you got a vibe for, you know, what I do, you mm -hmm. know. And um, and that was pretty quick. And then we started to talk. And then we're like, okay, um, you were like, will you produce my next album? And so I was like, Wrath I of Sandy. And, uh, and also, um, you know, I did uh, listen to what you were sending me, and I was picking up on 
you know, these uh, influences, you know, like some 242, and I was like, you know, because anything, the people approach me, I like, I, I mean, I won't turn anything down without listening to it. That just seems ridiculous, right? Mm -hmm. And if I listen to it, and if I, I, I pretty much just know right away, if I hear something, basically, that I can offer, you know, it's not, it's not really like, oh, I don't like it, uh, or I don't feel like doing it. It really comes down to, you know, does it connect with me? Do I feel like I have something to offer? It's not about like, oh, can I make some money off of these people? You know, that's just not how I work. So, um, so yeah, I started hearing some, some elements uh, of the music. And I even mentioned to you some of the, what, what reminded me of The Resident, which was kind of bizarre because yeah. I played you some of that today. It's a little bit obscure, but, but I heard a little, little bit of that. And I heard um, definitely, you know, what you were trying to do. And, um, and so I said, look, um, I was just worried that uh, I didn't want to overcommit myself you know and I think I finally said look let's uh, I'll tell you what I can I can do five songs for you I felt confident that I could d deliver that without making you you know wait too long and then you know we talked about money and then you were like okay uh, how about ten songs and I'm like uh, Five, ten, okay, you know. <laughs> I think it ended up being fourteen or something. But uh, but yeah, uh, he already recorded most of the music and all the vocals, and so um, sent me the stems. So really, all I had to do was track guitars and mix. And to be honest, your vocals, I've hardly had to do much of anything with your vocals. That, that saved me so much time, because vocal production is like a whole other thing. Um, beyond music production, so saved a lot of time there, um, except for that there was like 14 vocal tracks. So, you know, place them. That was the hardest part. But actually, like, you know, for instance, didn't have to 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 to, to work really hard um, on his vocal. He, he had his vocal sound dialed in, right, right. and it was just a matter of just fine tuning and um, and the music. Really, yes, was raw, and um, that's where um, I actually um, got, because of that, really had to work hard as a producer, and it, it made me a better producer, because producing, and something Al taught me, and something he learned from Adrian Sherwood, you know, working with him, great producer, <coughs> um, Cabaret Voltaire, Nine Inch Nails, um, Tackhead, and things like that, um, was, um, and something I learned in college uh, in my um, studying about music production is, uh, I think of music as a, as a soundscape, right. you know, um, like a canvas. There's only so much space on the canvas. You can use different colors, but if you want it to, you know, to, have to be presentable, you need to know about colors or frequencies. Um, sound is frequencies, you know, um, and so uh, you need right. to understand and see something that I didn't really know when I made my first false eye contractor was like, I was all about layering. You know, I was kind of insecure. So I was like, if I just have this like, you know, like eight bar thing, I mean, people are going to be bored by bar seven, you know, so I'm like, I got to be hitting them with something new every, you know, and I got all these synthesizers. So, you know, and I grew up on you know, Bach and craft work, you know, like, I listen to it now, it sounds quite simple, but at the time it sounded like, you know, the busiest, you know, so I was, my music was too busy. Mm -hmm. um, I had just too much going on, too much layering, just like layer over layer over layer. And that's how I built up. But um, soon I began to learn that and what Al taught me was like, uh, you know, you need to find a place for this stuff. You know, you just can't have 30 tracks of keyboard. You know, I mean, you can, but you got to find a place for them. Right. You know, because I thought we were going to have to, with false icons, um, we were going to have to kind of like 
you know, mix stuff in and out, you know, um, because it would just be too much to comprehend all at one time or that uh, we might have to lose some stuff. But uh, Al's like, no, I don't work that way, you know. He's like, we'll find a place for it. And he did something that I had never known about, which was um, EQing the left and right channel differently. I mean, I know about placing things and stereo placement. Um, that's a big plus. Um, but, but the idea of EQing something differently. And then only once did he look at me um, and lift up his reading glasses and say, do you really need four bath synths on this? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. <laughs> okay. Back to work. I started to learn to, to strip things down and try to be a little less busy. Um, but then with working with you guys, um, yeah, it was raw. So um, I really just had to, you know, just start from the beginning. So I had this process. Um, well, I'll never forget that after our courtship um, and you, because I, you know, I would wait and then I would say, so are you going to work with us? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I'd wait for the answer. But eventually you said, uh, yes, I'll work with you as long as you're not married to that lo-fi sound of yours. Did <laughs> <laughs> I really say that? Yeah. Oh my God. And, and I was like... Well, no, it was cool because I get it. I said, definitely not married to that lo-fi sound. Looking to put that behind us because that's the best that I can do. <laughs> so, yeah, we need you. Well, I've had bands, you know, accuse me of overproducing. I've heard. <laughs> so I just wanted to make sure that, that, that it wasn't going to be like, like that. Um, it wasn't intentional. We weren't trying to sound like we were from, like, like I said, it made me... It's just, that's a better I producer yeah, because definitely. I had to start from scratch. I wasn't taking polish stuff and just kind of, you know, fine tuning it. I was taking, you know, raw tracks and I'm like, okay. And there was a lot of tracks and, uh, and some people would probably be intimidated by that. Some, mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, producers don't know how to mix keyboards or work with keyboards. You know, they're mm -hmm. like guitar, bass and drums, you yeah, know, yeah, so yeah, yeah. you came to the right guy. You know, uh, I'd already had experience of working with a hundred tracks on a song. And, um, and so, uh, so yeah, so I had this routine that I developed and, um, I talked to Sandy about it from time to time, you know, like I just kind of, and what's interesting is, um, not to compare myself, but uh, I read an article with Bob Clearmountain, you know, great mastering engineer and producer and, uh, and, uh, he talked about the same philosophy. He was kind of like, yeah, I don't really think about it. Uh, I don't really like analyze it. I didn't listen to your mixes. Mm -hmm. I just put the tracks up. Um, pretty much just uh, muted all the vocals so I could just focus on the music and then, um, you know, okay, so what's he got going on with rhythm? Uh, what's he got going on here with the bass? Uh, drums, bass first, and then um, guitars, you know, um, but then the keyboards were all, you know, like, how are we going to fit them all in here? And, um, you know, when I read this interview with Bob Clearmountain, he said the same thing. You don't really think about it. You just kind of just start working, you know. It's kind of like you just like getting in the zone, you know, and you just kind of intuitively know what to do. And that's what it was like. I just started, it was like a puzzle, you know. It's like, okay, um, well, these drums, there are, like a lot of his drums were stereo tracks, you know. I didn't have like kick, snare, hat, tom, you know, like right. typically what you would work with. It was a loop. I would give you a loop. So yeah, yes. and so there were times when I was like, no matter what I did with the EQ, I just couldn't, you know, couldn't get it right. So I ended up reprogramming, you know, some of the drums. Um, and then, uh, you know, one of the songs, I think, I was like, well, where's the low end? There's, there's nothing happening <laughs> down there. So I like, whipped out a bass, and I was like, played a bass groove. And, and it was great that I could do those things, because some bands are like, oh, you know. Like, they know they just know what they want, and so it's like, you don't have a whole lot of executive. Like wiggle room. And these guys were just like, just like, you do your thing. And that was great. Um, but also, you know, I, I, I was like, you know, I, I don't want to just 
do crappy work either. You know, so right. I wanted to make sure they were okay with it. But it was great. Every time I would send them something, they were just like so happy. And um, I was always worried that you know there'd be these battles, or we'd have to. You know, I think one of the thing, one of the first things that happened was. Um, it might have been uh, the only thing that's real. One of the first songs I mixed, um, something about the guitar just wasn't sitting right. Mm -hmm. And it just wasn't grooving. And so, um, at least in the verses, and so I experimented with just taking it out. You know, there were some spots where I took things out, made some holes and mm -hmm. stuff, and most of you guys were good at that. But this time you're like, uh, yeah, like, what happened to the guitar? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, well, it just wasn't really sitting for me. <laughs> and, um, and then so I was like, well, it's pretty important. So. Uh, I, I asked myself, what is it that's not working? And I'm like, well, it's just not fitting into the groove. And so I was like thinking, well, what can I do? And I realized it's not the riff, it's just that it's not in the right place. So I shifted the riff like mm -hmm. a tiny bit and it dropped into the groove. And then yeah. we were back in action. I mean, that's like pretty bizarre stuff, you know? Yeah, yeah. That was like, and, and that's how we play it live now. Okay, <laughs> and that was, that was only like one of the only kind of things, other than that, like we said today, is mainly just, you know, you know, a matter of, you know, maybe the vocals up or down a little bit, or like you said, maybe a little brighter or something like that, mm -hmm. or sometimes it was just, that's it, boom, nailed it first try. Other times it was like, hey, we love it, but just have a few notes, you know, here and there, and it was really easy to, to work with these guys. And, um, and like I said, I, I, I became a better, a better producer, you know, learned a lot that, um, you know, moving forward, even working on, on my own, own material, um, that I'll be able to utilize a lot of the skills um, that I developed working with you guys. Cool, that's fantastic. Now, I just wanna ask you next, and this is, we're almost at the end, a signature question that I ask everybody that's ever been on the show. Where can you find your material? Yeah. <laughs> so, so, what platform? Yeah, where, well, where can I find your material? Well, we'll get there too, but I want to ask you how you feel about the current state of where the music industry is now, where people would rather illegally download or subscribe to Spotify than actually buy music. Well, I was around and in the industry uh, when the Napster thing uh, hit. At first, I'd heard a coworker talking about Napster. I'm like, what the hell is... I can say fuck, right? What yeah, the fuck yeah. is Napster, right? Mm -hmm. And um, then next thing, it was like, you know, people, you know, like my financial advisor said to me, so I hear that, uh, you know, the music music industry, you know, is taking a big hit and that, uh, you know, might be dying. And I'm like, oh, you know, I've been hearing punk rock is dead, rock is dead, metal's dead. I mean, yeah. so now the music industry is dead. I mean, Jesus, you know, I mean, how often can this thing die? You know? <laughs> but uh, uh, the idea of um, downloading or share file sharing, whatever they wanted to call it, was a very new concept to me and many people. But uh, I guess uh, you couldn't talk about it with talking about the Metallica yeah. Right. lawsuit they decided that they were going to take the uh the approach that you're stealing and you're stealing from us and we're going to you know fight back and the problem with that was they were metallica and they were like mega rich now not to say that that it, that justifies it because it's like saying stealing you know if you walked into the record store and stole the cd well it's a major label it's a big record store chain right. you, know, you could make this and the artist only sees a small percentage of it anyway so mm -hmm. it's not really stealing so you know it's the same kind of thing had already been happening and i remember uh in the 80s the, the record sleeves had this like cassette tape with a skull and crossbones and it said home taping is killing music mm -hmm. like if we were going to tape you know, like make make a mixtape, yeah, make a or, mixtape, or tape something that we bought and essentially paid yeah. the licensing rights for. 
Um, they were trying to make us feel guilty that we were somehow destroying music. And, um, and then when DAT tapes came out, digital audio was like, oh, people could bootleg uh, music um, and the, the music industry fought really hard to keep them out of the country successfully for quite some time and even when they first started coming in they made sure that they had different formats and not digital um, uh, ins and outs and things that would make it easier for, for bootleggers and um, that's were very short-lived because uh, CD burners came out and you could literally copy you know any CD but then they had to invent Copy protection. copy protection, which is, that was a pain uh, in the dick, I gotta Same say. Same thing with v VHS tapes. There were some VHS tapes that yeah. implemented copy protection, uh, you know, and all these things to fight when you're thinking about, like, really, how do you get stuff out there? Word of mouth and how we first uh, got music out there was, like, sharing stuff. Yeah. So the idea of file sharing, you know, but um, uh, I believe it was Steve Jobs quickly, you know, was like, okay, you know, this makes sense, but let's figure out a way to make it legitimately. And he invented yeah. iTunes and stuff. But yeah, Metallica took a hit, you know, for, for, for the way they approached it. But at the same time, if you think about it, yeah, um, uh, they might have not been starving, but um, it hit smaller artists uh, much harder that were depending on selling records because um, the pr traditional business model was that touring was kind of a promotional thing to um, to get your music out there and to take it out to to every city and every you know region and um, and then after you know they'd hear you they'd go out and buy the record. I mean you used to be able to sound scan, be able to see like you know like even in the prong days we would play Boston and then we would notice that the next day uh, we sold 400 There's copies like of our sales. album in Boston. And mm -hmm. so touring is expensive. Um, there's a lot yeah. of overhead. You've got to pay band members, crew members. You have to rent equipment, buy equipment, hotels, gasoline, so many expenses to go on tour and to do a big tour with lots of production. It was not unusual at all, even with the help of labels, tour support to lose money on a tour, but you would make it back by selling records. Right. Napster changed that, you know, so suddenly people weren't making the kind of money selling records that they were. Um, you know, bands that used to sell tens of million or 10 million records were selling maybe one or two million. And bands right. that sold a million records were selling like a half a million or maybe a quarter of a million. Bands that sold 100,000 records were selling, you know, 25, 50,000 records. And so everybody was taking a hit. So the only way to make that back was trying to push on merchandise and trying to, to actually scale down your production so that you could make money on tour um, because concert tickets and merchandise was the only way to make money. So it went from the touring process being a promotional tool, it went to the album being a promotional tool and to the point of like just giving your music away in hopes that people will discover you and come and pay money to see you play and buy a t-shirt. And it also seems like now, especially with bands that have been around a while, that like the meet and greet thing has really become a, a source Yeah, of it used to be, you know, not a big thing if you hung out by the tour bus you might get to you know meet the band or get an autograph or they might come out after the show and shake some hands and stuff and now it's like hey that you know you want that kind of access and you got to pay for it you know yeah. and got to make money somehow yeah it might yeah. seem cheesy but nowhere when you buy a ticket to say hey you get to meet the band and get a free autograph yeah, right? yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, so, fair enough. uh anyway uh yes times have changed but um rock is not dead punk is not dead music is not dead uh, we keep moving forward. So I wasn't a big fan of iTunes. I thought it was a really clunky program, and I hated the way that it was proprietary with Apple, and mm -hmm. it, you had to sync your iPod. I, I like the old 
media players, more like Android style, where you just plug it into your computer and put your files on there and yep, off you yep. go. <laughs> um, but now um, they've just done away with iTunes. So even for that matter, downloading is becoming a thing of the past. Right, right. It's all now streaming. It's streaming, yeah. yeah. And so uh, Spotify, and I'm thinking like, well, what if you live in the mountains and you, know, right. you don't have, well, satellite Radio was a thing for a bit, you know, it's kind of cool, but, you know, because, you know, living in the mountains, you know, radio stations were almost impossible to pick up when you're mm-hmm. driving, you know, satellite radio, but then cars, you know, would have, you know, you could um, plug your iPod in yeah, or something, yeah. and um, and that, to me, was revolutionary, because we used to lug around tons of CDs and cassettes. Oh, yeah, dude, I was one of those guys yeah. with, the, with the books and yeah, books of okay. CDs. <laughs> And now, even the idea of like an, an iPod, you know, people use their phone, and and even now the streaming. So like Spotify, Pandora. Uh, well, I'm, it's like when we had to give up vinyl for CDs. It wasn't as good, really. It's cleaner and digital, and didn't skip really or pop, but it didn't sound as good. And then MP3s are nowhere near as high quality as a CD quality or an album quality. You know. Um, so in that sort sense, of sacrificing uh, quality yeah, for convenience. I know, but yet movies, you know, have gotten, you know, they went from, you know, VHS, which was pretty poor quality, to, you know, some, some higher quality formats, and then uh, eventually DVD. DVD, Blu-ray, and, yeah, 4K. And then 4K, and like, and then, um, and that's great. And the, and the televisions, too, you know, higher resolution. What happened to music? Why, why wouldn't music want to sound better, you yeah. know? It's crazy, especially because, you know, at one point, the idea of the MP3 was because, you know, files were big and streaming them was impossible. Downloading right, and the dial-up connection. Yeah, so I understood. Um, but they've never, you know, now, um, you know, everything's faster. And like I said, uh, movies um, have, have taken advantage of that high-speed um, technology, you know, streaming, Netflix, blah, blah, blah. And yet music hasn't really progressed in that. Yeah, I noticed that it seems like in general you have to consider yourself an audiophile to give a shit about good sounding. We're going back to vinyl. (laughs) Well, that too. There's that too. (laughs) But, you know, you can't be driving around with a... With a record Parade player. Or and, uh, <laughs> suspending a record player from stealing your car with some springs or something like that. <laughs> so, um, yes, many questions uh, as to the future of music. And w- when we talk about the technology, like I said before, you would have to have tens of thousands of dollars just for a project studio. Yeah. Um, a professional studio, m- maybe millions of dollars. And uh, when the music industry changed, um, those big budgets and those big labels, you know, they didn't have the kind of money to throw around that they used to and so the big studios started dying out and people were able to make records at home you know and uh they didn't need you know fancy multi-track tape recorders they didn't need, didn't need big expensive mixing consoles you know so it's it's not as expensive to produce music anymore and some of the big producers you know have had to work for less because they don't have the budget um, so things are changing and and uh, now there's more bands i mean back in the label days i mean if only the bands that were successful or lucky enough to get onto a label got known and got heard and there really wasn't that much to pick from because you walk into a record store and there's only so much room in a brick and mortar place you know right. um so now with the internet you know, we thought it was going to change everything, and it kind of did, but we thought it would open things up, make it easier for the artist, and it has, but it's also made it easier for everybody to be an artist. It used to be, hey, I'm in a band. Whoa, well, wow, that's amazing. Well, that's the thing I noticed now you mentioned. it's like, I'm in a band, oh, oh, yeah, me too, or I'm a producer, yeah, me too. You know, it's like everybody's a producer now. Everybody has a band now, and that's, that's great, except that 
there's so much music right, that you right. have to try to you know sort through as before you could just go into a record store in an hour and flip through you know but you know some things we can't change you know so we we, we have to look at that and uh, now there's you know there used to be genres then there were subgenres and now there's niches and micro niches you know like agrotech and synthwave and <laughs> um, you know it's just like it's like more and more and that bothers me too you know the idea that you have to be in a genre or that you have to sound like something and there's so many bands that all do the same thing and they all sound the same you know i, I we're think, talking about that on the way here yeah that the, there shouldn't be any you know that's why killing joke had a hard time really getting marketed because labels didn't know what to call it uh, or what to do with it you know they could put it in the metal bin do we put it in the rock bin the punk bin you know like fuck it it's music right right well you had mentioned satellite radio before i, I noticed I, I i still have a subscription to satellite radio and i noticed that they're they've been playing even on the rock channels more and more playing people that they discovered on on TikTok, which I don't even use. I don't really give a shit about what that is, but it's like now TikTok people are getting radio playing. Yeah, well, then American Idol, it was like this big thing. And, you know, the winner got, you know, a record deal, you know, Kelly Clarkson or whatever. And I remember saying to myself, it's like, yeah, it doesn't really work that way. And even the labels are saying, hey, just because, you know, you made it on a TV show doesn't mean, you know, you're ready for, you know, a career mm-hmm. in the music business. But then... You got to the, if you weren't on American Idol, you couldn't get a record deal. Right, <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah. <laughs> so it's crazy. Um, I mean, yeah, think about it. Yeah, that show got canceled and then came back. Yeah, <laughs> well, now there's a whole bunch of them, X Factor or whatever, America's Got Talent. But, um, I mean, I remember Star Search, you know. All right. Yeah. 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 But, yeah, it's made, it made me work harder. I mean, when I first found out that you could buy programmable synthesizers, that was great because you could store all your hard work and recall it. But... Then I found out that not only that, they came with preset sounds that you could just push a button and have a sound. I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. Like, I had to go to college. I had to <laughs> learn how to program these big modular yeah. synthesizers. And some idiot can walk into a music store and buy a keyboard and push a button and like, you know, voila. So it just makes you work harder. So the only other thing that I've got left to ask you is, you know, you'd mentioned a new ministry on the way. You'd mentioned a solo album. What What is next for you? And and you mentioned also, you know, wanting to know where people can find, where can people find you and your son? Mm-hmm. Well, everything's going to Spotify and um, streaming platforms, but there's still a demand for physical releases. Kevin had to do it himself, right? Made CDs, and now we kind of... Yeah, the record label about, only wanted the digital rights. Because you can't lose money. Right. Uh, you can't, uh, digital costs nothing. But uh, CDs and vinyl, you know, you have to pay for, and then right. if you don't sell them, you lose money. Nobody right, wants right. to lose money. So... Um, but now vinyl's coming back, and um, so more and more people releasing on that. And people do understand, some people um, do understand that, hey, you know, these artists, they have to survive. And um, if all we're doing is listening to them on Spotify, the owner of Spotify is worth $3 billion, but these artists are struggling. Um, so um, the message is getting out there, and I think people are like, you know, hey, I'm going to buy the T-shirt. I'm going to buy the CD. I'm going to go pay money to see the band. And um, there are those people out there. Um, but yes, uh, music has become ubiquitous. And in some ways, it's kind of cool that Spotify, like, you know, it used to be, we'd be like driving along, oh, you remember that one song? You're like, there's just like no way, you know, you're like, yeah. Yeah, I might have, have it on a cassette at home somewhere. But now it's like, oh, Spotify, boom, there it is, yeah. you know? So there's pros and cons to, to all of it. And, we, and we're still navigating it, you know, the labels. In some ways, they were dinosaurs. In some ways, uh, they weren't doing things properly. They didn't really care. Some of them did, but didn't really care about music. They were just looking to make money. 
and they would just put out stuff and see what sticks. And uh, you know, at one point, country music got really popular and mainstream, and so there was bands that got signed as like a metal band, and the label was like, oh, um, we're not interested in metal anymore. Um, can you guys play country? <laughs> we're like, what? Uh, because if you can't, we have no re- need for you. <laughs> See, that's a that's a jump. Like like you mentioned American Idol and. Uh, uh, Taylor Swift, before she was a pop star, was country, and I can see that bridge, but from metal to, you know, the only metal to country was that I can even think of was when the guys from Pantera did that Rebel Meets Rebel project mm. with David Allen Coe, and that made sense, but well, like... Well, Al made, Al made a uh, country record. Oh. Uh, straight oh, Shooter. Buck Satan? Yeah, Buck Satan. Oh, oh right, that's right, that's right, right. But he loves country. He, yeah. he really does. Authentic. Right, old country. Yeah, um, but yeah, uh, labels typically, you know, were not musicians. They didn't care about if you could pay your bills or if you had um, a benefits package. You know what I mean? They were they were in it for themselves. So you know, to see the labels die, I'm not really losing any sleep over that. And now uh, it does open it up. Like we talked about the internet, it helped bands, but it also hurt bands. But there's also a big shift because um, bands that were had made it and got established prior to Napster, still have a way to market themselves and brand themselves without, you know, having, you know, I mean, people, you know, once you have a name and a brand, you know, you can still do it. But, but now, starting out, in some ways, is harder than it ever was. And you would think with the internet, like, I remember, like, ooh, Facebook, uh, we're going to send out an invite for our show, you know, <laughs> we don't have to make flyers anymore and I would uh, talk to people like why didn't you come to our show what show well I sent you an invite on Facebook I have had so many people either either outright block me on Facebook or block me from sending them event invites because I am such a big supporter of the scene that it's like, hey, here's this thing I think you might like. Go to it. And, yeah. and they're like, dude, you sent too much shit. Yeah. Stop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, um, and then like, it was all about followers. And so these bands would have, like, 10,000 followers. So, you know, promoters are like, oh, they have 10,000 followers. Book a show. Clubs and stuff would be like, oh, you know, sure, I'll book your band. You have 10,000 followers. And then, like, 10 people would show up and be like, where's your 10,000 followers? Well, first of all, they're all over the, oh, the world. world. Right. Second of all, they might not even be 10,000 of yeah. them. We don't even know these people. Yeah, that guy um, in Italy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, <laughs> and so now we learn that it's not really about that either. But all I can say is that, yes, music is not dead. And music will be here. It's been here for millennia. How it works and how people make money off it and how all those things, you know, yet to be determined. But uh, music uh, will survive. All right. Well, I, I thank you so much for, for your time and your and your input and spending some time with me. And um, don't really know what else to say except thank you so much. Thank you.
that was False Icons with the song Awaken. I want to thank John so much for being on the show. Thank you to Kevin for helping to set this up and helping me host this show. You can follow False Icons on social media on Facebook at False Icons and on Twitter and Instagram at False Icons Music. John is also, as we said, a member of Ministry. And you can follow Ministry on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at We Are Ministry. You can also follow J Bunny's Music Hub on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Patreon. Just look up J Bunny's Music Hub. And if you believe in what seems to be the lost art of <laughs> supporting music the way that I do by buying it, you can also follow Industry Embers at Industry Embers on Facebook and Twitter. And be sure to tweet or post your music purchases with the hashtag BuyMusic, B U Y, or it's BuyMusic, B Y E. Now, Last week's episode was the Chemical Straightjacket episode. Along with that episode of the podcast is a giveaway of the new Chemical Straightjacket album, Dark Progression, which was produced by John Bechtel. That contest is still ongoing, so just go ahead over to that episode of the podcast on Facebook and comment on the post that you're interested in the CD. Make sure you're following J Bunny's Music Hub. Make sure you're following Chemical Straightjacket and you could be, you're entered into the contest. Contest is going to run for about another two weeks because next week's episode is going to be with Craig Niebuhr, a.k.a. Synth Lord Trace Aether, who, as we mentioned, was involved in the making of the Chemical Straightjacket song Death of Lucille from Dark Progression and is also involved in the side project Handsome Abominations, so I figure that having this contest run across the, the weeks of these three episodes was fitting. So make sure to head over to Facebook and comment on the Chemical Straightjacket podcast episode and tell me that you're interested in the CD. And comment on, you know, anytime, anytime that you guys listen to an episode, give, give me a comment. I feel like uh, I'm, I'm lacking in feedback lately. So if you like what I'm doing, let me know. If you don't like what I'm doing, let me know. I know that people are listening. I'm seeing that there are downloads. I'm seeing that there are plays. But I'm not hearing from anyone. So uh, let me know what you like or don't like about the show and and participate in some of the content. We're going to be running contests like this occasionally. I've done it in the past. I'll continue to do it. Um, and I was also thinking of making that a a perk on the Patreon is to uh, just members get automatically entered in the contest. If you, that's something you're interested in, you think that's a good idea, let me know. As for what's next for the podcast, like I said, next week is the episode with Craig. The following week is going to be the episode I recorded with Donald Carpenter of I Empire, Bliss Krieg, and Submersed. So keep an eye out for that one in a couple of weeks. I have other emails out waiting for responses. I have people waiting for responses for me. I still have an episode that is uh, supposed to be happening sometime this month that had to be postponed. So we will see how it goes. This is this is going to keep going. Obviously, we've got weeks of content coming, and, and, and uh, I love bringing it to you. So... I'm going to leave you guys today with another song by John Bechtel. He had mentioned that he is working on a solo project. So this song is from the solo project. This is Breathe. Until next time, guys. <laughs>